Well, we are in um, all over the scriptures today, so you might just have your Bible ready to do some flipping. And we're doing a special study to prepare our hearts uh, for one of our um, yearly fasts that we have done. Uh, we're coming to our fifth week-long fast that we've done corporately as a church here at Calvary Chapel. God has worked in our lives in tremendous ways. If you've been a part of these fasts, you can, you can attest to that. As we've just gone to great lengths to honor the Lord and to worship the Lord and to humble ourselves before Him and, and confess sin and just cry out for special grace upon us. Uh, he's been so faithful in these times past. And so as we once again come to a season of fasting at our church and to a, a subject of fasting, uh, we're aware that the subject of fasting is not something that you hear much of in the evangelical church. It's not something that you maybe want to hear much of in the evangelical church. Um, you know, today it's funny. Uh, this week I was studying and I typed into a search bar, fasting. And I mistyped and I wrote fast OMG instead, right? And I think those of you that tweet today, you're already putting it out. Fasting OMG. You know, you're like, I cannot hear about this. I don't want to know anything about this. This sounds painful, sounds horrible. You know, we often think that fasting is something that monks do, or maybe Hare Krishnas, or you remember watching a video about Gandhi back in high school, and you're like, Gandhi fasted. Yeah, that's what he did. Or maybe, you know, like John the Baptist was a dude that fasted and, you know, he like lived out into the wilderness and wore camel skin and a leather belt and ate bugs and honey and you know, like, yeah, that's people like that fast, you know. But it's interesting as you read the New Testament, the disciples didn't need to be commanded to fast. The disciples seemed to have an understanding that it was a normal part of the Christian life. For us, it has become strange. We don't know many people that fast. If they do fast, they maybe seem a little bit odd, we think. But the truth is, we ought to expect fasting to be a regular part of the Christian life, of the Christian journey. We've been learning in this church that we're called to be disciples. Amen? Amen. What is the root word of disciple? Oh, good job. Discipline. All right? Discipline. You know, John Piper says, hey, not doing some things you feel like is the daily pattern for the disciples of Jesus. I mean, every day we come across things that our flesh feels like doing. Our flesh really wants to look at that, really wants to taste this, really wants to go there, really wants to hear this. And we have to say, no, you can't do that. Discipline is a part of the Christian life. It's something daily we should practice, and, and yes, daily, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus himself says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Is that something that marks your life? My life is just marked with the daily denial of Rory. I'm just denying self, you know. I'm constantly taking up my cross and following Jesus. Paul spoke of his own life and that he practiced self-control, self-discipline. He said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's a great passage, isn't it? But it's a bit of a non-injurious translation. Here's the literal Greek of what Paul says there. 
I give my body a black eye and make it a slave. Is that something that describes you? Like you're going throughout the day and you're like, oh, I want to go over here and look at this. <laughs> you're not doing that. You're going over there and not looking at that. Okay, you know. Is that something that marks your life? Do you make your body a slave of the Holy Spirit and of the things of the Lord? Richard Foster wrote a wonderful article about how to fast in the 20th century. He's a professor of theology at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas. He says the disciplined person is the guy or the gal who can do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. It's the disciplined person who can feast when feasting is called for. And we call for that at this church, don't we? Pulled pork, summer in the park service, woo! Let's eat as much as we possibly can, all right? (laughs) We do that all the time. In fact, we even feast after our fast. The Saturday following the fast is a feast, all right? We can't get there fast enough, (laughs) all right? No pun intended, all right? So not only do we as a church need to feast when feasting is called for, and some of you need that discipline of feasting in your life. You're like, I'm working on my abs. I'm not going to come to the uh, feast at the church. It's like, hey, let your abs take care of themselves and come eat with us. All right. But the disciplined person also needs to fast when fasting is called for. Foster says in all of his research, and I can attest to what I've been looking up, there's not been a single full-length book on the subject of fasting from 1861 to 1954. No books on fasting were written. That's nearly 100 years. Now, what would account for almost an unexistence or disregard of this discipline that's so frequently mentioned in the scriptures and ardently practiced by Christians all throughout church history? It could be this prevailing philosophy that's found its way into the American culture and then trickled into the American evangelical church. This philosophy, and maybe you've bought into it, I know that I have, that it is a positive virtue to satisfy literally every human passion. All right? We, we see something, we want it, we buy it. We've got Amazon Prime so that it can get to us in two days and we'll get a little bit of a discount. You know, We see it, we want it, we hear of it, we want it, we go to it, and we just, any passion that we can have. If it rolls on wheels, we've got to have it. If it cools us down, we've got to have it. If it does, I mean, if it smells this way, we've got to have it. Any passion that we can satisfy, we go for it. And so because that is a philosophy of our culture, it trickles into the church, and we then push away certain things that say, you're not having that. You're not going there. You're not eating of that. This discipline is the Christian experience. It's the Christian experience to fight against our fleshly's daily, flesh's daily cravings. We see that in Romans chapter 7 and in Galatians. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposite from each other to keep you from doing the things you want to. There's this battle going on. And it's not like the flesh is as equal to the spirit. It's not yin and yang. The spirit is much greater But God in his sovereignty has worked it out that we would, by the Spirit, crush the things of the flesh. In fact, it's in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, where it says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And so there's this daily practice as Christians of having the Holy Spirit empower our lives to kill sin, to mortify our flesh, to literally execute with a kill shot, 
anything that comes and exalts itself against the name of the Lord or the things of the Lord. And you know what? We often think sexual desires are probably that most deadly desire, but that's not the only thing that needs to be killed. We have anger and rage and resentment issues. We have fear of man that is holding us back from great things that God has for us. There's discouragement, self-pity, self-promotion, hardness, envy, moodiness, sulking, indifference to suffering, laziness, boredom, passiveness, lack of praise, lack of joy in Jesus, disinterest in others. These are things that daily need killing. If you sow to your flesh and if you let your flesh rule, those things are going to win. Galatians tells us if you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. But if you sow to the things of the Spirit through things like prayer, worship, scripture, just immersing yourself in scripture, times of fasting, you will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. These times of like battling the flesh, man, what it is in in times of fasting, it's literally slapping your flesh in the face and saying, you're not going to do that. You don't get to go there. You're not going to eat that today. Is it a bad thing to eat? No, it's a great thing to eat. But guess what? You don't always get to do what you want to do. You're not in charge. You're not in control. Jesus is in charge. Fasting is a time where you tell your flesh just that. There was a Benedictine monk named Adabolt de Vogue who had rigorously fasted for decades. Not like he didn't eat for, you know, 20 years or something, but off and on, right? And he wrote a book that jars many people with its title. Here's his book, To Love Fasting. Anybody got that on their shelf? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I read it every day, right? <laughs> to Love Fasting. What de Vogue learned as he disciplined his body in fasting can be a lesson for all of us. Here's what he wrote. Fasting was no longer a constraint and penance for me, but a joy and a need of body and soul. I practiced it spontaneously because I loved it. Spontaneous fasting. Who would have thought? Just like wake up one morning like, ah, I'm not going to eat today. I'm just going to pursue Jesus with everything that I have. It's not often the cry of our heart first thing in the morning, is it? I praise the Lord, though, that God has done a work in our church over the last five years where, uh, it's funny, Jesse Martinez will share his testimony. He's a big dude, you know, Jesse. That's how he talks. And he was here listening to a sermon on fasting two years ago. He's like, I'm not going to fast. And here's, fast smash. You know, that's what he says. Fast smash. Like, I'm going to do that. But God began to work on his heart and say, you know what? This is something I've got for you. This is something I want you to do. And the Lord had changed his heart to where it's similar, his story is similar to many people in our church where now they don't just fast in our week of fasting as a church, but all throughout the year they'll hear of certain situations that just need the touch and the power of God and they'll fast. They'll hear of people being sick, they'll fast. They've got stressful situations, they'll fast. They want more of Jesus and they'll fast. Praise God, he's working a love of fasting in our church. That's a work of God, guys. Nobody just in and of themselves is like, I'm just really excited to like have my stomach just cringe and growl all the time. What is fasting? Well, it's easy to speak of fasting when the stomach is full, all right? It's so easy to be like, and we're going to fast in a week, and it's just going to be great. And then you get there, and it's like, Grah! right? Okay, fasting is much more than uh, fun things, as I'm sure you know. In an email from a friend of mine, Sandy Adams, 
a pastor friend of mine from Stone Mountain, Georgia, he wrote us concerning fasting. And he misspelled the word fasting in his email with the word fatting. All right? And he's such a funny, quick-witted guy. He wrote right back and he goes, fatting. Now that's my kind of fasting. It's mine too, as you can tell. Charles Spurgeon, an uh, 1800s preacher from London, he's known as the Prince of Preachers, he refers to a writing in one of his sermons. This is a writing by an old Puritan. And here's what the title of the Puritan's message was. The soul-fattening institution of fasting. Fasting really is fattening. It's fattening for our souls. And here's what Spurgeon says in his sermon. What is fasting for? That seems a difficult point. It is evidently practiced oftentimes by our Lord and advised by him to his disciples. Not a kind of religious observance that's in and of itself meritorious, but a habit. When associated with the exercise of prayer, unquestionably helpful. I'm not sure whether we have lost a very great blessing in the Christian church by giving up fasting. Then he refers to Martin Luther. Martin Luther, whose body like some of ours would have, was of a gross tendency, felt as some of us do that our, in our flesh there dwelt no good thing. In another sense, the apostle meant it, and he used to fast frequently. Martin Luther says his flesh was wont to grumble dreadfully at abstinence, but fast he would, for he found that when he was fasting, it quickened his praying. And then he references this soul-fattening institution of fasting where the Puritan writes, During a fast he's felt more intense eagerness of soul in prayer than he had ever done at any other time. Closing from Spurgeon here. Some of you, dear friends, may get to the boiling point in prayer without fasting. I do think that others cannot. So just looking at your prayer life, I mean, is prayer for you like something that you don't do, something that you care not to do, actually, something that when you do go to do it, you're like, I got nothing to say, you know, like, is it rough? Is your prayer life hard? In another book on leadership, Charles Spurgeon says that when your heart beats cold in prayer, go and hammer it hot on the anvil of prayer. And I've found that so many times I go to a time of fasting or a time of prayer, and at first I'm like, oh, this is like brutal. My flesh doesn't want to do it. You go do it anyways, and you hammer it hot by doing it. And God is faithful to meet you as you draw near to him. Fasting is a natural, inevitable response that we have whenever a grievous or sacred moment of life occurs. Fasting ultimately is a response to God's love in God's grace. It's one of the most intimate times of communion that we can ever have with Jesus. And John tells us that it's been made available by the death of Jesus Christ. It was by the death of Jesus Christ that that middle wall of separation was torn down, that we could draw near to God once again. Because God is so gracious and has made that available, we want to press in and draw near to Him. It's because Jesus Himself fasted. Not only during those 40 days during the temptation period, but he had a a 33-year period of fasting where he separated himself from the rights and privileges of deity and he dwelt among us. And he did go through times of not eating. He did go through times of torment. He went through times of not being at home for you. 
Because Jesus fasted, we're drawn to fast. It's by the grace of God that we are moved towards intimate longing for God. Fasting has been called denying physical things to seek after the spiritual things. It's saying, I'm denying the physical food because, God, I'm hungry for you. I'm hungry for you, God. It's taking a physical longing like food or anything else that your body seems to always want or that your mind always wants to go through, and it transposes that longing to a spiritual key. It's saying, just as I hunger, Lord, I long for you. It's taking my stomach and making it a longer for God. And man, there's going to be times, and it's fun, but we come together here and we fast together, and you got homeboy sitting next to you, and his stomach lets out some kind of whale mating noise, you know, and it's like, you know, and you're like, whoa. And brother's just like, man, I'm longing for God right now, all right? I've made my stomach a longer. Sometimes we only fast just to prove to God that I don't live on bread alone. I live on you, Lord. Fasting is an expression of a longing for God with our hunger. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? This is a very biblical practice. Over 70 times in the scripture, fasting is mentioned in very descriptive ways. We like to think that fasting can be from things other than food, and and that's actually true. It's actually true. We can fast from things like TV. In fact, I recommend if you're fasting from food, don't just take the time you're eating to go watch Oprah or something. I mean, that's kind of like, oh, just might as well eat, okay? But take the time to go and seek the Lord. Fasting and prayer are often coupled together. Jesus says, when you fast, when you pray. Notice he doesn't say, if you fast. Eh, If you ever want to, no one's going to want to, so might as well toss that out of the Bible. No, when you fast, fast like this. When you pray, pray like this. And even when you give, give like this. This is on the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's true that we can say, okay, you know, like, you know, fast from TV or Facebook or Java or whatever, you know. And and maybe with your health, that's something you need to consider giving up instead of a full diet or something, all right? But here's the deal. Here's what Arthur Wallace writes in his book, God's Chosen Fast. In fact, we've got some copies out here on the table if you want to borrow one and take it home this week and read it. It's a quick read. It's a good read. But he says this, and I'm going to quote him a few times today. I hope you don't mind. When someone does not like the meaning of something in the Bible, they are tempted to spiritualize it and so rob it of its cutting edge. It can no longer cut. In the main, this is what the professing church, the evangelicals, have done with the biblical teaching on fasting. To fast, we are told, is not to only abstain from food, but anything that hinders our communion with God. Wallace goes on to say, or they say, fasting means to do without, a practice of self-denial. We have only to widen the meaning enough, and the cutting edge is gone. It is true that there are many things that may hinder our communion with God, and many things that we need to practice self-denial, but the fact still remains that to fast means not to eat. And you know what? There's somehow, hey, God's the one that created it. So somehow our bodies are like, our, our stomachs actually are connected with like the throne room of God and the presence of God. Right? He's the one that's got this practice of fasting going on between our stomach and him. 
But we want to be like, oh, I'm still going to eat like a pig during this week, but I'm just not going to check my Twitter account. Well, you don't check your Twitter account anyways. And instead of doing that, you're just going to go pig out. But when you don't eat, all of a sudden there's something that's going, oh, you know, something's different. Something's not right. Your body's like, all right. And one reason that our prayer lives go up like crazy in times of fasting is because it's like, oh, lunchtime, not lunchtime. All right, well, time to pray. And then it's snack time. Oh, not snack time, time to pray. And then it's snack time in the middle of snack time. And you're like, nope, not snack. Every time you're, it's like an alarm going off. Pray, pray, pray. Something powerful that goes on there. But we spiritualize it and rob it of its cutting edge. Andrew Murray wrote a great book that we've gone through at our prayer meeting here called With Christ in the School of Prayer. And in that book, he says, fasting helps us to express, deepen, to confirm the resolution that we are willing to sacrifice anything, to sacrifice ourselves, to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. How desperate are you for your children to know Jesus? How bad do you want it? Just asking. How desperate are you for your marriage to be healed and your marriage to be Christ-centered? How desperate are you for there to be a revival in Prineville? How desperate are you to be delivered from that habitual sin? How desperate are you? Fasting is a way that we express that we are willing to give up anything, even the source of life to our bodies, for God's will to be done. It's not just, I'm saying I long for you, God. Anyone can say that. It's showing I long for you, God. It's taking our, uh, our physical hunger and making it a hunger for God. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, Jesus says to John, It's done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. You know, in the scriptures we see things called total fasts, all right? Some people are called to total fast at times, and it's no water, no food, all right? We'll see that in Ezra. We'll see that in Moses' life. We'll see that in um, Elijah's life. And Esther, not Ezra, is what I meant. And here we see that Jesus is the source of living water. How could you go three days without water? Because I'm connected to the source of living water. Or Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 2. I like this. Ho! Ho! <laughs> We should use that more often. Ho! Ho, ho, ho. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Do you see that we can be satisfied with more than the fleshly cravings? And we can take periods of our lives to prove that, that we would come and tap into Jesus and we could come and have a type of bread. He says, I'm the bread of life. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, you can come to Jesus and buy this bread and buy this milk and buy this honey, this sweet thing that comes from Jesus, that it's at no cost. There's something so much better than a pizza and a burger and french fries. There's Jesus. He can satisfy your deepest longing. I think it's in Haggai 
that it talks about even though there's no olive on the vine, there's no wine in the presses, and there's no oxen or sheep in the stalls, he says, I will have much strength in the Lord, and I will jump around with the feet like lamb's feet. We can have strength, even though there's no food. Old Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard, you know, to give her the dog a bone, and there's nothing in there, not even a bone for the dog, and she could have strength to hop down to the store and get him one. That's why you have notes. You should stick with them and not do nursery rhymes. So come to Jesus to be satisfied. Now, if you are a Christian and you say, well, Rory, I'm already satisfied. Like, here I am, it's 2014, like, I'm a Christian and I'm good to go. I'm just content like this for the rest of my life. And I would say that's a, it's actually a sick place to be as a Christian. The Christian should always be longing for more and more and more for Jesus. You're sick if you're content with where you're at. He wants to take us higher up and further in, in our relationship with him. God rewards fasting because it's the cry of our heart that nothing in this world can satisfy but him. And if you know Piper at all, this is a total Piper quote. He must reward this cry because he is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God gets so much glory in these fasting days where a hundred Christians come down here with empty stomachs but hearts that are full of Jesus and we cry out and worship him and we fast for him and he is glorified and he is all about his own glory. That's okay for him to be all about his own glory because he's the only one that's worthy of glory. Do you remember when the disciples urged Jesus to eat in John chapter 4? Rabbi, eat. And Jesus says to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And I just love the disciples. The disciples say to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? What's he talking about? And Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. May the Holy Spirit awaken you today to understand how important and vital this tool, this practice of fasting really is. Do you desire a deeper, more intimate and powerful relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you not even know that you should desire that? It's a good time to fast. Are you in need of a healing in your life? Physically, bodily, you need a healing, a touch or a miracle. Do you need the tender touch of God in your life or a fresh encounter with Christ? A heightened sensitivity to the desires of the Lord. Do you need to break away from sin that are holding you bondage and as hostage? Is there someone in your life that needs to be saved? You desire for them to be saved or that your marriage would be healed and your kids would come to know Christ. Then respond to God through fasting. Fasting is a humbling of oneself before God. It's a time where the, we are broken before God and we say, God, have your way. I was reading uh, some biographies about these incredible men who were part of like national revivals. One of the guys was David Brainerd. I've, anyone heard of David Brainerd? Okay. David Brainerd was uh, part of the Yale uh, Seminary back when it was a seminary. And, uh, and there was like some drama and political stuff that went on and some sin in the leadership. So Yale like ceased to be and people got kicked out. Brainerd was kicked out. And while he got kicked out, he had like this passionate move of the Holy Spirit in his life calling him to go preach the gospel to the Native Americans. Like this is in 1740, all right? And so he goes out on horseback and starts preaching the gospel to all these different Native American villages. 
Meanwhile, he's diagnosed with tuberculosis, and he's going to die by the age of 27. But before he dies, he goes all around, and he leads these Native Americans into this radical revival. And as you read his biography, fasting and prayer was an, a major part of his spiritual practice and discipline. Uh, I was reading in this that um, there were times that he had to go off to, to learn uh, the Native American languages. And if you've ever gone to school or something and you're just really doing your studies, you like for, you don't, you're not reading your Bible, you have to miss some church, you know, all this stuff, and you kind of just get stagnant. So he writes about that. He says, those weeks that I'm obliged to be away from home in order to learn the Indian tongue are mostly spent in barrenness. That's like spiritual barrenness. And I feel myself a stranger to the throne of grace when I return home and give myself to meditation, prayer, and fasting, a new scene opens. Does anybody feel like your Christianity is barren right now? I mean, honestly, just be real. Like, you're coming here today and you're like, like, NASCAR's on this afternoon, you know? Consider fasting. (laughs) He writes, when I returned home and gave myself to these things, a new scene opened up. Doesn't that sound good? That there's actually a new scene to what you perceive as spirituality? He says, and my soul longs for mortification, for self-denial, for humility, and divorcement from all the things of the world. When we set ourselves to fast, a new scene opens up. And God will work in our soul a hatred for sin, like a total lack of desire to be a part of anything that's wicked. God works that out through these times of fasting. Fasting is directly connected with direction, knowing which way we should go. Is anybody here like, man, we've got like a move coming up or a job thing or like, I don't know, what should we do? Fast. In the scripture, you see it directly connected. We'll see it today. Fasting is directly connected with insight and divine revelation from God. Fasting comes, uh, with fasting comes God's divine intervention in the Bible. Fasting is a spiritual weapon that is mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Wallace writes in Chosen Fast, he writes, In giving us the privilege of fasting as well as praying, God has added a powerful weapon to our armory. In her folly and ignorance, the church has largely looked upon it as obsolete, and she has thrown it down in some dark corner to rust, and there it has laid for centuries. An hour of impending crisis for the church and the world demands its recovery. Man, isn't it the grace of God for you today? If you come here and for you fasting, God has it like it's like the atomic bomb of our, arm, of our army, you know. And, uh, and you kind of like hit it back in the closet. And God's like, that's effective. Bring it out here. God's brought you here today to bring it out from the dust, you know, and from the mothballs. And to bring it out as a weapon that's useful. Fasting with a pure heart and right motives can provide us with a key to unlock doors where other keys have failed. In the Old Testament, Abraham's servant fasted before he was uh, seeking a bride for Isaac. Maybe you're seeking a bride or seeking a groom. Fast for it. Do we have that in Prideville? I don't know. Okay, Not many single people around here. Um, Moses fasted on Mount Sinai. For 40 days he did a total fast, no food, no water. And then he came down and everyone was sinning, so guess what he went back to do? 
He fasted again for another 40 days. That's not what I'm calling you to do here, okay? So don't, like, get up and walk out right now, okay? Maybe God's calling you to. I don't know. Uh, just kidding. Don't do it. Um, Hannah, when she was praying for a child, fasted. David fasted on several occasions. One time he even fasted for a sick enemy. When was the last time you did that? He fasted for his sick child. Elijah fasted after his victory over Jezebel at Mount Carmel. Uh, but he also fasted 40 days, a total fast. Ezra, when he was mourning over Israel's faithlessness. Israel, when they were seeking direction. Nehemiah, when he was preparing a trip back to Israel to rebuild the wall. Esther, when God's people were threatened with annihilation. Daniel fasted on numerous occasions and saw God's faithful hand to, to give him favor in, in king's eyes. People of Nineveh fasted when Jonah came and told them of their sin. In fact, their fast was a fast that involved the cattle. The cattle fasted. I mean, I don't know if that was willing or people forgot to feed them, but poor cows. In the New Testament, Jesus fasted in preparation for his public ministry. The early church fasted when they were sending out missionaries. And in Acts chapter 13, you read of people fasting and praying. It says, when they were ministering to the Lord with fasting and prayers, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas, uh, Paul and Barnabas, excuse me, for the work that I have for them. And maybe you're like, Lord, what would you have me do in the ministry or in, in serving you in this church? Fast. I believe the Holy Spirit will speak to you. Uh, in church history, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, David Brainerd, we're reading from him today, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, E.M. Bounds, Andrew Murray, all write in their journals what a powerful place fasting was in their life. Why has this fasting practice been lost? Maybe because there's golden arches and arctic circles on every corner or pizza places on every corner. And we're just not hungry. We're actually very full. It's when we have a desperate need that we fast. If you're not a faster, it means you don't have a longing. You know, I think of when uh, Brett Merrick's daughter Daisy was diagnosed with leukemia. And the fasting and the prayer that he had over his little girl. Man, when your little girl is diagnosed with cancer and she's going to die, man, you cry out to God. You fast. And maybe you're not there where you have a relative who's going to die of cancer, but maybe your people around you in your workplace have a destiny of eternity in hell. And God would place upon you a desperation for their souls that you would petition him with your hunger to save them, to bring them to the faith. Fasting is born out of desperation and a longing for God to break through and change me and change them and change us. I want to give you a few Old Testament examples, and we only have time today for Old Testament examples of fasting for the most part. Uh, if you want, in your Bible, turn to Judges chapter 20. Now, Judges is known as the Dark Ages of Israel's history. And there's a phrase that's constantly repeated in the book of Judges that shows why they're in the Dark Ages. It's this phrase, and Israel did what they thought was right in their own eyes. All right? Whenever we do what is right in our own eyes, man, we go into darkness. We go into a very dark place. And to show how dark things were, you get to chapter 20, and you have the story of a man who's on his journey with his concubine and his donkey. You know, just a normal everyday thing, right? He's on his journey. He goes into a city square in the region of the Benjamites. And he can't find anywhere to sleep. The inn is full, if you will. 
And so he's going to sleep in the city square, and a man comes and says, what are you doing out here? This is not a good place for you to sleep. Come to my house. Apparently there was only room for the man. The concubine sleeps outside on the doorstep, and the donkey has his nice little abode for the night. Tragically, in the middle of the night, a band of Benjamite men come, and they abuse this woman all night long until she dies. In the morning, the man comes out ready to go on his journey again. He kind of kicks her and says, get up, let's go. She doesn't move. And so as part of his grief and and the tragedy of the sin, he cuts her up into many pieces and sends her throughout the nation of Israel to every tribe to show how wicked the Benjamites were. There's there's just an outcry against such wickedness, and Israel goes to war against the Benjamites. Now, Israel has 400,000 people in their army, and they're going to go to war against an unrepentant Benjamin army of 26,000. Let me say that again. 400,000? 26,000. There's a war going on. Who's going to win, right? Obviously, they think they're going to go kick some Benjamite booty. It's not what happens. Let's read here. In Judges chapter 20, verse 18, just kind of scanning, we have Israel pray if they should go up and fight. They go up and fight, and they lose in verse 18. Verse 23, they pray if they should go up to fight. They go up to fight, uh, even after they've wept until evening, and they lose against the Benjamites again. In verse 26, it says, Then all the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up and came to the house of God, and they wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord, jump down to the end of verse 28, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. And the Lord defeated, verse 35, Benjamin before Israel and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites. All these drew the sword. So interesting. Maybe there's something going on in your life that you've prayed about. Oh, I've been praying for it. Just seems like God's not making it happen. And you just, the Lord hasn't released you from praying for that. And so you've prayed and you've wept about it. I've cried. I've cried tears until evening. And it still hasn't seemed to have seen breakthrough. And here we have the nation of Israel. They weep and they pray and they fast, showing a desperation, showing a longing. And the Lord comes through in victory and power and brings a great victory. Jehoshaphat is another incredible story of a battle won due to fasting and prayer. In the days of King Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles chapter 20, There's three big armies, I think it's something like three million men that are coming up against the nation of Judah, and they're found at En Gedi, all right? So they're really close to Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat hears about this giant army coming against them and kind of starts to freak out, right? It says in verse 3 of 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat feared... And set himself to seek the Lord. Isn't that a great example for us? Man, if you got news like that, you set yourself to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. If you go down to verse 12, it says, uh, his prayer says, We are surrounded on every side. We have no power against this multitude that is a coming against us. 
nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah was with their little ones and their wives and their children stood before the Lord. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. Jehaziel is a prophet. And he said, listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Verse 17 says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Here we see in verse 21, the worship band is sent out before the battle. It says, when they had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord, in verse 21, and who should praise the beauty of his holiness. And as they went out before the army, they were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who'd come against Judah, and they were defeated. And man, maybe you're at a place in your life where you're surrounded on every side. And like Jehoshaphat, you don't know what to do. Say like Jehoshaphat, but my eyes are on you. And come and be part of this fast. And send the worship team out front. Man, we will spend time worshiping. I believe that there's a word from the Lord for you today, if that's you, surrounded on every side. I mean, maybe you're going bankrupt, or you're about to lose your job, or you're about to get evicted, or whatever. I mean, I don't know, you know. You're surrounded on every side and you don't know what to do. God is calling you to come and place your eyes on him. And just like in the story we read, you would be called to come and position yourselves in the battle. But you will not need to fight. Just position yourselves and watch the Lord win the battle. Guys, I can tell you from my personal experience with fasting, there have been many things and many deadlines and many scary things and big decisions that we have had to make. And the Lord has spoken to us, just position yourself and fast and pray and watch me fight for you. And you know what? He does. He does. I've seen it. I've got incredible things and incredible testimonies to tell you about. Would you join us? Would you come be a part of this longing for the Lord to move in your life? Perhaps you're in a place as the folks in Ezra. In Ezra chapter 8 verse 21 Ezra proclaimed a fast at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. So two great things that the Lord sees us do and that we position ourselves to do through fasting. Number one, we humble ourselves. It's a time of brokenness before the Lord. I'm looking forward. I think the Lord's doing a great work as we come through Passion Week when we look at Jesus and his way to the cross. And I believe as we humble ourselves, he's going to help humble us. He's going to do a radical work in us. In David Brainerd's diary, I was reading about his fasting and just how the Lord humbled him. He writes this, Sometime in February 1738, I set apart a day for secret fasting and prayer and spent the day in almost incessant cries to God for mercy that he would open my eyes to see the evil of sin and the way of life by Christ Jesus. 
This is a guy that's riding his horse around preaching the gospel to the Native Americans, and he's taking time to cry out to God that he would see how wicked and horrible sin is. And you know, as we examine Jesus and his way to the cross, man, I just we're going to cry out that God would just show us what sin really is, what sin really does, and that he would give us just a nausea against us, a hatred for sin, a zeal against sin. And he goes on to say, And God was pleased that day to make considerable discoveries of my heart to me and to make my endeavors a means to show me my helplessness in some measure. That God would show us our helplessness, but he doesn't leave us there. He shows us his greatness and how he fights our battles for us. We also see in Ezra's fast here that fasting is a means of receiving direction. I like how it's, put, how it's put, to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and our possessions. Are you going to buy a house, have more children, invest in something? Are you moving? This is a great time to fast and seek the Lord for his will and his direction for you and your little ones. John Piper writes, They were hungry enough for God's leading that they wanted to say it with the hunger of their bodies and not just the hunger of their hearts. Nehemiah has a wonderful fast, or rasp, either way. It's a revival fast. Fast that you can read about in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 1 where revival happens because of fasting and reading the scripture. In Esther, There's a fast that is led by Queen Esther, but before it happens, we have a man named Haman, who is a wicked man, kind of a Hitler of Esther's day. Haman the Agathite convinced the Persian king Ahasuerus that every Hebrew person in their captivity was to be annihilated and their possessions plundered by the Persians. So King Ahasuerus is is on board with this. It's going to happen. They're building the gallows to stall to start slaughtering Jews, all right? It's very holocausty. It's like the gas chambers being built. When Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin, uncle? Thank you. Uh, I was confused the two. Uh, when Mordecai, her uncle, hears of the gallows being built in this plan, he tears his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and goes out in the middle of the city. This is Esther 4.1. He goes out in the middle of the city and cries out with a loud, bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one could enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, there the king's command and decree had arrived. It says, There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. So this is, I'm sorry, this is verse 15. Esther hears the news. She's like a queen now. Her uncle tells her of the plan to kill all the Jews. She's a Jew. Maybe, remember Mordecai's words to her, perhaps the Lord has brought you here for such a time as this, to save the nation of the Jews. And so Esther replies to her uncle, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. They've got this little rescue plan set up. Fast for me in the rescue plan and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So here's this rescue plan to essentially stop the Holocaust. And what do they do? 
They fast. They cry out to God in desperation. Desperate times call for desperate measure. Here's a three-day absolute fast. No food, no water. Here's the miraculous story. That night, King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep that night. And so in his boredom, he calls for the books of the Chronicles of Judah to be brought to him. And he reads about Mordecai, Uncle Mordecai's great and fantastic work. So he calls Mordecai to him and says, have you ever been rewarded for all these incredible things you did for Judah? Not long after in this whole process, Haman the Hitler ends up hanging on the very gallows that were intended for all of these Jews to be killed on. God came through for this nation. It's a similar story. In World War II, the king called the British to a day of prayer. Two centuries earlier, England was called to, I quote, a solemn day of fasting and prayer. This is John Wesley's journal. Because we were threatened invasion from the French. And on Friday, February 6, 1756, John Wesley records in his journal this. The fast is a national fast. I mean, we've never seen this. The fast was a glorious day, one that London has scarce seen since the restoration. Every church in the city was more than full, and a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God would hear our prayer, and there would be a lengthening of our tranquility. Now what I love about journals is there's often written next to it the answer to that prayer. And here in Jonathan Wesley's journal, there's a little footnote that says, Humility was turned to national rejoicing for the threat invasion by the French was averted. How incredible is that? How powerful that when grave national crisis lay ahead, the church would humble herself with fasting and prayer. Even if only the godly would respond, they'd find that God's promise holds good. That if my people who are called by my name would humble myself and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will hear, heal their land. Guys, I don't know what, I'm no politician, I don't know much about that type of stuff. But when you see Russia lined up on a border to invade Ukraine... It's something to start praying about. And when you've got America and international talks and the the EU and all of those things, it's something to start praying about. Lord, what's going on? If there's a way that we can stop through prayer some giant global conflict like a World War III, we don't want to go to war with Russia. I'm just telling you that. If you study history, no bueno. Those types of armies are not good to go against. We should be praying for Vladimir Putin. We should be praying for, I don't know the president of Ukraine's name. Anybody? At least I'm not the only one, right? We should be praying for these countries and that there would be peace or that God in his sovereignty, his will would be done because he's the one that moves the borders of the lands for his own glory. In the same way, in our own land, in our own local church, Wallace says if the local church is threatened with discord and division, if spiritual life is waning and worldliness abounding, if conversions are few and backslidings frequent, would not this be a time when leaders should call the church to prayer and to fasting? Man, that the Lord would just give us a hatred for just the perverse things in our culture that we just allow in our homes. We've been going door-to-door preaching the gospel. And you know what? 
we've been getting a lot of, I'm not interested in Jesus. I'm not interested in Jesus. I'm not interested in Jesus. We've been seeing that there's just a coldness to the gospel. And that we would pray and fast that the Lord would perhaps have mercy and call these individuals to salvation. Isaiah chapter 58 gives us, a, it's a long passage and we're not going to read all of it just to encourage you. But Isaiah tells us what an acceptable fast before the Lord is. And he says in verse 3 of Isaiah 58, Why have we fasted and you've not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I've chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul, to bow down his head like a bulrush and spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? And that whole context is that Israel was fasting, but then they were like beating up their servants and neglecting the poor people. And Isaiah says, the Lord through Isaiah, is this not the fast that I've chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Man, are you in any one of those places where you've got wickedness binding you? You've got heavy burdens upon your back? You're oppressed by, by sin? Or perhaps there's, perhaps there's demonic oppression upon you? And God would come and he would break those yokes of wickedness through this time of fasting? He goes on to say, after these fasts, verse 8, Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall break forth speedily or spring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he shall say, here I am. Does anybody long for that? That the righteousness of God would go before us and his glory would be our rear guard, that we would call out to the Lord and he'd hear us and answer us? He'd say, here I am. He goes on to say later on at the end of verse 10, your light will dawn in the darkness. Your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And the Lord desires this for us, that we would have a revival, that we would have our garden at Calvary Chapel watered. Zechariah 7, 5, and we're moving towards our closing here. There's so many passages concerning fasting and miracles that happen with fasting and God like doing radical spiritual warfare through fasting. We just don't have time today. But Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5 gives us the most important reason for fasting. Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned on the fifth and seven months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? Man, when you fast, say, God, I'm hungry for you. God, I'm fasting for your glory. Wallace says, this is surely most loftiest conception that it is a worshiping or a ministering to the Lord, a giving of ourselves to God, and only secondary, a means to secure spiritual ends. What is ultimately our fasting about? It is about Jesus, making his name known, being hungry for him. It's interesting that David Brainerd and all of his fasting, he came to a place where he was fasting for other things. 
He wasn't fasting for the glory of God or for the love of Jesus. And he writes that in his fasting, he, he says, I saw there was no necessary connection between my prayers and the divine mercy, that they laid not the least obligation upon God to bestow his grace upon me, and that there was no more goodness in them than there would be in my paddling in the water, which was a comparison I had in my mind, uh, Brainerd writes. And this because they were not performed from any love to God. I saw that I had heaped up my devotion before God, fasting and praying, really thinking I was aiming at the glory of God where I had never once truly intended it. If you're going to come to this fast as a religious thing or just to get something from God, maybe manipulate him into giving you something. He owes me now. I fasted for six hours you know, or something or seven days, whatever it might be then just as Brainerd said, it would be like paddling in the water. It would be worthless. God doesn't owe you anything, but he does respond to a heart that's pursuing him. We're going to have the worship team come on up and close us in song. Charles Spurgeon writes of his times of fasting at the church there at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He says, our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. Never have heaven's gates been higher. Never have our hearts been nearer to the central glory. And I think there's many testimonies here of the times of fasting at Calvary Chapel have been high days indeed. A couple years ago, the Lord led us to fast, and as we are fasting for, uh, for five days, we read through the whole New Testament in five days. Something like 13 chapters every six hours or something like that. And we read through the whole New Testament, praise God. Last year we read from Genesis through Ruth in six days. And, you know, my planning of the year, I'm like, oh, and then we're going to go this year through 1 Samuel through, I don't know, Second Chronicles or, you know, Psalms or something, you know. Something great. It's going to be so cool. Just be in the Word. And then as we looked at our calendar in the calendar planning meeting, you know, for us to fast before summertime and the busyness of summer hits, it was kind of an open week there during Passion Week. During that week in history where the Lord was preparing to go to the cross and he was in Jerusalem and he was speaking some final words of pleas and correction to the Jews and setting himself up to be, you know, the sacrifice for our sins and to go to the cross and rise from the dead. And we just all were there planning at our calendar planning meeting. We're like, man, what a neat week that would be to, to fast. You know, ch church history, you know, has Lent. We're 40 days before Easter. You know, everyone gives up one thing. And we're going to have our own kind of Lent. We're going to fast and seek the Lord. And this year, we're not going to go from 1 Samuel through whatever. You know, we're going to come and we're going to just saturate ourselves in Jesus. And you know what's so exciting in, in my reading that I've been doing? are the revivals that happen on a national level when people just come and, and focus on the gospel. That the gospel changes us. The gospel renews us. The gospel gives us that hatred for sin. The gospel works in us all kinds of wonderful things. There's healing through what Jesus has done. And so what we're going to do this week, just to give you a quick outline, next week we're going to come here. Normally we're fasting on the Sunday of the fast week. So we're not going to be fasting next Sunday. It's going to be the first week of the Passion Week for us, and we're going to study the triumphal entry, and we're going to you know, focus on Jesus. And that night we're going to have Passover, 
we're going to focus on Jesus and how he's the fulfillment of that type of the Passover lamb from Exodus. And then Monday, from Monday through Friday, three times a day, we're going to be down here at the church at 6 a.m. and at noon and at 6 p.m. And uh, still praying about what those morning and noon sessions are going to look like. But uh, one, of my, one of the options is that we're going to go through a gospel a day. We're going to go through Matthew on Monday and focus on Jesus being king. Focus on Mark on Tuesday, Jesus the servant. Luke on Wednesday, Jesus the true man. And John on Thursday, Jesus, God. But the evening sessions, we're going to take just a time. That portion of Passion Week where Jesus was there on Monday, what did he do? We're going to look at what Jesus did on Passion Week. And we're going to glean from him and learn from him and have him apply the word to our life. We're going to do that every day of the week through Passion Week. We're going to let him speak to us as if we were there with him on Passion Week. And we're going to have a humbleness of heart and of soul to say, Lord, change us change us. And so I encourage you to pray about what this fast is to look like for you. Some of you, your health and things like that, you can't fast, all right? Some of you should talk to your doctor before you fast. Some of you, you know, certainly the Lord would be calling you to be giving up a meal, two meals, three meals, maybe even a whole week of fasting. Many people do that during these times, a whole week with just water or with just juice, maybe a juice diet or a veggie diet. There's a lot of options laying out the menu of fasting for you here. But pray about it. Pray about what things the Lord would have you turn off. We're just going to turn off the TV this week. We're just going to, I'm going to close my Facebook account. I just, I'm owned by Facebook. It's like, you know, and the Lord's like, hey, why don't you just not do that this week? Just come seek me. But pray about it. You've got over a week to just pray about it, to check out God's chosen uh, fast book. I'll post other resources on the church Facebook page and to just pray, Lord, how would you have us fast as a family? I encourage you husbands and men to lead this charge in your home and uh, last week year it was so awesome to watch the Kessies uh, you know the Lord led them to be a part of this as a family and it was a wonderful time for them Lord really changed them as a family so pray about that husbands and men leading your homes in this charge of fasting We're going to close a little different today. We're not going to have communion during this time of worship. Communion will be open for you guys after the service ends, and you can get it and kind of find a place to partake with your families and pray together. Those are special times. But today we're just going to close with a song that my friend Ryan wrote in Corvallis during our first fast that I was ever a part of. And he wrote this song about the fire of God burning in our hearts. So we sang another song today about fire. Do you guys remember that? If you're new to church, you're like, what's what's their obsession with fire, right? Well, everyone likes fire. But as you read the scriptures, we see the Holy Spirit, when he comes and he moves in a midst, he'll come just like like fire. He'll come in in Acts chapter 2, we see tongues of fire. And of course, that hasn't happened very often since then. That's okay. That happened in Acts chapter 2. But fire came and it was a manifestation of the Spirit of God. We see that we're to be fervent in the Spirit, which means to be on fire by the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to pray in in song right here in our closing. Lord, take my life, take our church, take our city, do a revival, do a a life-changing work in me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Bring power into my life. Bring fire, bring zeal, bring fervency into my walk with you. And that's how we're going to close today. As you're here, why don't, as you're ready, 
Just as you hear, feel the Lord just saying, hey, I'm calling you to be a part of this, and you just sense he's telling you how you're to be a part of this fast, why don't you stand during this song? And just, just as a response, like, Lord, I'm going to be a part of this. The leadership is calling us to this. You seem to be doing something here. I want to be a part of it. It's new. It's a little strange to me. It doesn't sound comfortable. But, Lord, fill me with the Spirit so I can do it, so I'd want to do it. And as that's you, stand just in response to God's calling to seek him through fasting. Go ahead. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.